Welcome back, everyone, to the OGs. I'm Don Povia, joined, as always, by Kyle Bunch. Kyle, how are things going down in lovely Texas? Doing all right. Doing okay down here. Good. I, I just got back, and uh, it was as cold as it was in New Jersey, but that's that's all right. It was nice yeah, to get yeah. away to a somewhat open open state down there. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, well, well, you were up in Dallas, Fort Worth, right? Yeah. 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 They they get real they get real winter up there sometimes. They're ill 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 prepared. They say if you you know spill a slushy on the ground, you'd get a snow day. But uh, mm-hmm. it, can, it can get cold up there on in the the frozen flatlands of Dallas. It's definitely a sneaky cold. But uh, Kyle, just about two weeks ago, we had uh, Lang Whitaker on, and Lang was talking uh, quite affectionately about his good friend Seku Smith. And unfortunately, this week we heard the news that uh, he passed uh, from. Com- complications of covid uh so just want to send our um regards to him his family his friends his loved one uh, i was fortunate enough to meet uh seku through lang and, and with rick fox as they were doing a little tour on the uh, nba.com bus a couple years back and uh you know i didn't know him well but by all accounts he was so well revered by everyone so um, just want to send out uh, a quick note to again family and friends on that. You know, Seku was a, a consummate professional, uh, one of those guys that started as a uh, sort of beat reporter. Uh, you know, covering some basketball teams. And speaking of beat reporters, and I don't know if you'll, you'd call him that, but a lot of what I uh, I see every time I see a picture when he's throwing something back, uh, he's in the he's in a locker room with a mic in somebody's face. Uh, usually, somebody iconic like a Kobe or an AI as they're passing through uh, the great city of Philadelphia. Um, but we have a guest this week, uh, Michael Tillery, who was on our panel at BWB7 in Chicago. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But Michael, thanks for joining us this week. My pleasure. Definitely an honor. Awesome. Did you uh, did you have a relationship with Seku by any chance or cross paths? I, I did. So, you know, early on, you know, you, you spoke about being a beat writer. You know, I, I covered the NBA uh, for Slam Magazine. Um, I did it. I've been covering the NBA for about 15 years. I haven't done it really in the last couple of years, you know, sporadic games here and there. But, um, you know, some of those games are when Atlanta came into town. And, you know, Atlanta had a, a pretty competitive team at the time with Josh Smith and, um, you know, Mike Wilson was the coach, you know, was doing a good job before he went to New York. And, of course, you, you cross paths with the beat writers, you know. And, and at the time, you know, Sekou w- w- was covering um, the Hawks. You know, so I, I got a chance to talk to him. We weren't really cool then. You know, it was kind of thing. You see somebody in the locker room say what's up and um, you put your microphone in front of somebody's face like you alluded to earlier. Um, you know, I didn't really become cool with Sekou until, you know, later on. You know, obviously the explosion of the blogosphere, um, you know, and, you know, following the NBA. The NBA kind of exploded virtually because of social media. And we had a basketball Twitter and, you know, basketball, Facebook and whatever else. And, of course, we, we, we friended each other. You know, I had him on my my show a few times. I think my other writer from the starting five, Gerald Wells, actually interviewed him for print. Um, so, we you know, we became very familiar. Se- Seku was that unpretentious guy that everybody in the world should know. You know, no matter what you ask of him, he was just like, sure, yeah, what you need. You know, just just very laid back down to earth. Um, obviously, you shared a passion in Michigan sports, um, University of Michigan. So, you know, there was there, there was a lot. He was I, I never I can't remember like a, a time where, you know, he was passionately elevated. You know, it just seemed like he was always even kill and um, accessible, you know, very knowledgeable. You know, like I said, didn't speak until he needed to speak or someone asked something of him. Um, You know, I didn't know he was sick. You know, I I did see that um, a a few of my, our colleagues on on NBA TV were saying that he was under the weather. So he wasn't in the studio, you know? So yesterday's news was shocked. I actually saw it on Hugh Douglas page and I thought he was just shouting out his boy. Then I saw what Hugh said to caption. I'm like, what? And, you know, it's, it's been something. I've been on the phone almost every minute that I'm awake talking about him. 
Yeah, it's crazy. And, and a guy like Hugh that, you know, seemingly what connection would, you know, would he have? Um, you know, just that, I think that talks about a guy's legacy and, and the reach and uh, the way people, um, you know, appreciated his work and, and his person. Um, you know, speaking of work, you, you've pretty much carved a pretty unique path yourself. Uh, you know, I think you started starting five around 07, which is when, you know, I got started myself, um, spent a, and it really, that's where I knew you from, right? Starting five mm-hmm. and rap station radio were your, your two big calling cards. Uh, I think when we both, both got acclimated with one another, mm-hmm. um, always, uh, seems to be an infusion of, uh, sports and culture in, in everything that you do and, and really an unapologetic tone um, mm-hmm. to what you bring to the table. Um, how purposeful is that? Or is that something that just sort of evolved or when you started uh, becoming a, as you will, a sports commentator, uh, did you have it in your mindset that, Hey, I'm going to be sort of a, a cultural commentator as much as a sports commentator. I really had no inclination to, to do so. You know, I was a, a baseball player growing up, um, you know, didn't play too much organized ball. And I, was, I played in a wooden back league, and I think I had like four home runs and four bats. And, you know, the Mets and the Mariners were happy to be there, and, and they gave me a tryout. Um, you know, my, my immaturity, I had a party in my house that night before that I didn't want to reschedule. And I'm, I'm waking up 7 a.m. to my coach banging on my door. Um, I'm asleep on the floor, passed out. I actually had a fun time that night, whatever. But I have a baseball tryout, pro baseball tryout um, at, at 7 o'clock. It was a 96-degree day. You know, I, 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 I didn't even brush my teeth. I just grabbed my clothes and left. Uh, I did hit two home runs, but I – threw every ball over first base by like 10 feet. You know, the crowd was like, ooh, ah, you know. So um, it became a baseball coach after that. Um, I I coached a 16-18 team when I was 19. You know, I had three other teams, a 7-8 team, and then I had a a little league team. I had a a 13-15 team as well. You know, that's when uh, the passion kind of shifted. You know, I, I coached in in Wilmington, Delaware, Elkton, Maryland, and um, Delaware County here. And the majority of the leagues I coached in were, you know, black and Latino leagues. You know, I ended up being like a pseudo father to all these these little kids, you know, taking them home, doing their homework. I was going to college and I was working full time in the post office. Um, so, so it was a lot. But throughout this process, you know, uh, obviously there was a maturity that happened, but it was um, the, the coach and the father and the athlete was easily transitioned over to becoming a writer. After and I, and I became a writer after a divorce. You know, I was just trying to write out the the divorce past uh, process. And my sister saw a poem I wrote called "Divorce Cry." Um, she said I should be a writer, so I just basically just went around the web to see if anybody could would take me. You know, I didn't go to J school or anything like that. And two sites, Black Athlete and Black Sports Network um, dot com, allowed me to to form my craft. Um, Black Sports Network also gave me some editorial uh, responsibilities, you know, reporting, uh, covering like the Martin Luther King groundbreaking ceremony, um, where I filled up my phone with the you know people that were there. Um, so covering things like that, you know, obviously the cultural influence of Martin Luther King is, is, is just amazing. And I was looking at myself and I said, yo, dude, are you really a sports writer? You know, or do you want to put just put that label onto you and maybe you get in a closed box or do you just want to expand? And, you know, when you, when you're a reporter early on, you got a brand new recorder, you know, you're trying to throw it in everybody's face. It just so happened that this MLK groundbreaking ceremony, you know, Jesse Jackson, uh, Bill Walton, um, and, and all of the, the civil rights uh, dignitaries from the day who were present, you know, I got to interview. And it opened my mind. So it, I saw things in sports that I don't think I would have normally seen or been aware of had I not had this exposure to culture in general. Um, so, you know, I, 
I said to myself, let me kind of write or tell the stories that are kind of unappreciated or, or uh, not spoken of as much. And I said, this is kind of my wheelhouse. You know, it was like that, that pitch at the knees, a little bit inside that I could yank over left field, you know? So, uh, you know, I, I started to do this, started to see some success. I started to see uh, people want more of it. So I, I ran with it. You know, I just went to a bunch of charity events and just started to interview a bunch of people and network. And out came uh, uh, what is now. I wouldn't call myself a journalist. I, I would call myself more a commentator, you know, prospective uh, author. I'm almost finished a book, horror fantasy, and I'll be able to speak about that a little bit later on. Um, I'm seeing just so much in sports that I've sacrificed a lot. I want to write a story about Aaron Rodgers coming out of the tunnel. What's he thinking about as he approaches the field? The little kids that he might see in the stands with his jersey on. I don't feel like I'm able to do that because there's so much out there uh, regarding race that isn't spoken about outside of a superficial measure. Uh, so you know, here I am, and that focus currently is, is, is the black quarterback, black coaches, black GMs, and the lack of black ownership in sports, uh, given the makeup, is very frustrating to see, to watch. It's uh, uh, mentally belittling to to that we're even still in this type of atmosphere where um, every single job isn't available to everyone alive. And it's, it's sad. It's melancholy. It's bittersweet. It's therapeutic, but it's necessary. You know, the coaching makeup, the candidates, the Bianamis, the Frasers, the Caldwells, you know, the, so, some of the other guys, you know, Raheem Morris. If we're only speaking their names because that's who um, the leagues and the media have identified as the most uh, talented candidates, we're missing 50, 100, 300 you know, other people who are qualified but just aren't as known. Right. That guy on the sideline that can motivate a linebacker to get 10 pack tackles a game. And he has a bum shoulder. He has a torn ACL that he's coming off of, but he's going out and getting his 10 tackles. That's that coach. You know, um, the fact that the enemy called, you know, that, that play – uh, with, with Chad Henney, that, that fourth and one, you know, uh, it was said immediately in the game, but those kind of points need to be made. But the, largely the candidates who are propped up to be the next guys, maybe not be the most talented candidates that we know of. So if you, if you look at this as a small box of people, as opposed to the lot of it, you're going to miss so much. I, I'm curious. There's a, there's a lot in there and, and, you know, may go, go back certainly, but, but on that, that last topic, cause certainly watching, I mean, every off season where we get to this, Hey, there's this qualified set of black coaches. It seems like this will be a, a year where we get some breakthroughs and then we go through this. I mean, the enemy thing this year has been, insane to watch deuce staley uh on top of that uh, yeah in, yeah in our backyard here same thing he he asked for out of philadelphia where you know he's been forever sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no no that. no and I, what do you th- like what is the inflection point like where does this break through uh you know and obviously a lot of it just comes down to legacy owners that have clearly bring a lot of prejudice and bias into a into a process it's just hard. there's no other great answer but when do you think what's what's that tipping point when do we get that breakthrough michael in your mind it's like this the conversations that are usually uh brokered are from the black community that's embarrassing like this is it's like it, if I say the right keyword, 
then movement happens. So that's my issue with black folks and white folks in general. The conversations aren't pure. And, you know, Don was speaking about how, me, me being unapologetic. Everyone has their job on this earth. Uh, there is no um, monolith. You know, um, I choose to be very passionate and direct in what needs to be said because emotion more than anything else has changed the world. If you are emotion, emotional about a subject and you make someone face the mirror to where they're uncomfortable, when they're in their quiet moments, they're going to think about what you said. You might not get the response that you want in that moment. But later on, he had a point. I have a lot of detractors, you know, because they say I focus on race too much. Um, they, they say that maybe some of the things that I say are not accurate. It's not the case. It's the NFL. It's their money. They can hire who they want. Maybe have a pipeline of coaches that they grew up with along the, the path of them becoming an owner that they always sought to hire. I get all that. Just yesterday, I think it was, or maybe, maybe it was, I don't know, before the weekend, you know, I, I, I saw something on ESPN that said, uh, you know, there's one coaching spot left. And all of a sudden, they, they, talk, they, they, they say Caldwell, and they say uh, uh, Leslie Flay's Frazier, and, and obviously the enemy. Like, listen, man, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of being looked at like I'm stupid. Okay? Eric Bieniemy, since he became the, the OC there, obviously they've had the most explosive offense in the NFL consistently. Of course, they have maybe, and it's crazy that we're saying this, but he could be the greatest player to ever play in the NFL in Patrick Mahomes. Um, we, we, we have Andy Reid. You know, I covered the Eagles extensively, you know, when he was here. And, you know, I got a lot of time, got a lot of chances to talk to him about, you know, who he was and, you know, his philosophy and coaching. And he was always a great guy. You know, he learned from having Donovan McNabb there. He learned from having Donovan McNabb here and, and not getting to uh, the pinnacle and raising that trophy. And that year when T.O. was here was a magical year for, for Philadelphia and his fans. He took all of that and the death of his son and, and all that whole process that went on here to where he had to leave and went out to Arrowhead with those great fans and, and is building a dynasty, you know, um, over, over the time, just, just covering that team and this team, you, you you're seeing a lot. You know, I talked to Jeffrey Lurie a couple of times. I, I don't have a relationship with relationship with him, but you know, like like I said earlier, it, it's like a keyword has to be said for the conversation to move, and eventually get to a point where you know a, a black ownership is a reality. No one wants to take over the league. We want our children. Those little snotty-nosed kids that might be in the hood, they don't have no money, no, nothing in their stomach. When they look at TV, why shouldn't they see a black head with a headset on it? That will expand their mind. Because if you're watching TV and you're seeing nothing but white coaches and white owners, right, subliminally, that's, you're not even thinking Maybe a black coach can be up there, right? But if you see a black coach, it's going to expand your mind and you'll say, maybe I could do that. It's the same thing with, with politicians or doctors or engineers and whoever. I coined this phrase soul model, you know? Um, we, we, we need those soul models as well so we can be productive to the society. No one wants to take over. No one. It just, it's just a simple respect. And it's, it's so disrespectful right now. 
like, of course, I am going to look for what else this nation, because I, I, conversations need to be had uh, throughout, because this income gap is another thing that's embarrassing, right? So part of, part of, of, of lessening that income gap is for money to happen. So if you're an owner or you're a coach of an NFL team, you know, there's, that's millions of dollars. You know, some of that money can go back in the hood or some of, some of that money can be uh, for yourself, obviously, so you can have a happy life. <laughs> you know, of course, this is part of capitalism, but the majority of it is a conversation that hasn't been saying since 1619. Michael, I want to um, just hit on a couple of things that you spoke about. Number one, I want to say this for, for all your detractors out there and as unapologetic as you claim to be, and you are, and I mean this in the most respectful way. I also think you're the most, one of the most open-minded loud mouths that I know. <laughs> so <laughs> as, as much as you speak, I also find that you listen and, and I really have always appreciated that about, about us, whether it's, online or through email or sitting down and having a meal with you. Um, we could talk race, we could talk politics, we could talk sports and, and you listen, you, you, you speak. So for all those detractors and haters out there, um, you, you obviously haven't done enough listening yourselves. Um, the other thing I want to hit on is you, you talk about these positions in sports and, but when you were talking about your, um, you know, your career, uh, the fact that the jobs that you were grabbing were places like the black athlete and black sports network and needing outlets like the shadow league and the starting five and the, um, uh, the undefeated, right. Places that you've stopped along the way. Um, is that also telling too, because you talk about those keywords and those voices. Um, but here we are almost needing, uh, you know, these, other tangential alternative sites as opposed to having them within sort of the mainstream conversation. And I think things have changed over the last 10, 15 years quite a bit, but uh, is that also reflective of, of what you're speaking about, about opportunity? Well, definitely. I think it's a double-edged sword. You know, like I, I posted a, a piece today that I wrote in the New York times about uh, ACH you know, obviously yesterday we saw that no uh, player was inducted to the Hall of Fame. They, they asked me to write a, a, an alternative piece on ACH and to find out, what, is this a benefit to humans? Not just athletes, but to humans. So I, I found a doctor and a doctor told me that if regulated, we probably could live to we're 150 years old. It's not more of a performing en enhancer. It's, it's more about healing the body. If you notice, a lot of athletes are dying in their 50s and 60s. It's, it's, it's not just from the sport. It's from jet lag. But being on a plane, different time zones, we all know what that does to your body, your mind as well. The, the, the problem that I had when I would, I think I maybe wrote, I don't know, eight or nine pieces in New York Times. There was a lot of editing, you know, um, it, it's sometimes it seems like mainstream editors take your most provoking point and take it out the piece. And when you read it or you share it, it is there's almost an embarrassment Like you have to share it because, you know, you want people to read your work. But when it's not you in there. There's an issue. I, I have a vast vocabulary. I, I know I'm not, you know, an, an idiot, you know, so it, it, it's, it's the meaning sometimes when uh, you know, I'm seeing pieces or you know, people are saying things that, that I've said 10, 15 years ago, you know, so the opportunity, maybe it's there now, you know, I, I'm really focused on this book to finish it. Um, but, you know, maybe, there's some opportunities out there for me to, to do some things. Um, you know, I have been hit up by, by, by a few people, but you know, I, I'm really concerned about the watering down of something. 
Um, you know, I'm good friends with Jamel and, and a lot of those dudes at ESPN. And, and we, we're all in like the same circles, really, right? You know, so like, again, it's, it's kind of really embarrassing that a lot of the things that a lot of people said 10, 15 years ago are, are, are being said now and it's popular. And people are starting to get it. You know, the radicalization, I think, is an individual thing. If, if some people just aren't comfortable with what's being said, they call it radical. But, you know, in, in that determination, if it's radical or not, is there any fact in the words? Or is it something flippant to your mind to where you just want to cast it aside or, or, or humor it, you know? And then when someone says it that you notice, that you're familiar with, oh, yeah, 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 they said something. You know, so it's hard for me to to pull back who I am to where the timing of my words will be relevant in the moment as opposed to 10, 15 years in the past. And I feel like I've already said everything, you know, so it's very frustrating. I don't like to repeat myself. It's not being there's no disrespect to anybody asking a question. But if I've said something 100 times, I don't want to say it again. So in the view, uh, I, I like what you said about the radicalization where a lot of these things that are being said, if you look at it with an objective mind, don't seem all that radical, <laughs> which is, wow. you know, the, the irony of, uh, of the situation. Um, how, how do you feel about guys say that are, African-American say like a Jason Whitlock, right. That or works for like an outkick or a Fox news or a, a place like this, that, you know, for not taking that. So let's say radical opinion is radical in itself. And, you know, then get pigeonholed as, you know, an uncle Tom or, um, you know, something derogatory like that. Um, their opinions aside, I think the, uh, what is your what is your thought on uh, again that pigeonholing and yeah yeah it you know in, in, in my maturity and, in my maturity I've kind of backed off of calling somebody a coon you know or something similar you know I, I, I'm trying to have dialogue with everybody right now because you know as you said earlier I listening you know I'm trying to become the best man that I can be. I'm a black man. So of course, that's what I'm going to speak about. That's my existence. It's my upbringing. It's who I am. I look at it more as me being a pitcher of a team. You know, you're coming in and you're, you're, you're pitching and you're helping the team win. You're bringing your individual skills to the team. So the team can become all encompassing. So there are there is definitely room for for every voice. Uh, in 2006, you know, Scoop Jackson and Jason Whitlock were having a rift at ESPN. Um, I think it was because Scoop just came in and kind of became this booming voice, and maybe there was some jealousy there with Jason. I, that's what we saw it as. So I sought to interview both of them. And kind of, you know, lending olive branch to it. Um, I was very disappointed that Jason didn't allow me to interview him over the phone or in person. It was it was an email interview. And I couldn't ask any uh, uh, backup questions. You know, Scoop Jackson's was a, a almost a three hour interview that's on my site now. It was called Vantage Point. Um, we spoke about a lot of things that are that are happening now. The issue that I have with people who are comfortable or make white folks comfortable is what is your intention? Are you intending to move the needle to have the, the confrontation that's needed to expand a global scope of America, right? Or are you trying to be someone who is pandering to tradition? to purists, to people whose lives are exactly what they were the day before. 
the not ha- the unwillingness to expand and open and have a perspective about someone who doesn't look like you. I think that that's our biggest issue in this country now. I have an issue with writers who do that. Okay. If you're going to explain who you are to someone who doesn't look like you, at least have a full range of information. You know, <laughs> it, it, Jason was coming on my on a starting five for a while because uh, um, uh, Marcellus Wiley had said something uh, about a comment that Jason had made. And, you know, Marcellus asked to put this letter that he wrote to Jason, open letter on my website. And, and I put it on there. And um, it, it's funny because, you know, J- the Jamels and the Dave Zirons and the Lebertards and even Chuck D was, was coming in this conversation. And it was, a, I thought it was a great conversation. But there was a stopping point with Jason where he did not, he was not willing to be open and hear the gripes that we had about him. As you said earlier, I am a listener. I, I can take constructive criticism. If, if it's something that I can learn and, and shift something, that's what I'm going to do every time. And I think that that's a, a big misconception about me. I'm, I'm open. I want to make myself have the most information available. And when I see a writer, now you gotta understand the process, you know, we're writers as well. So we, we, we all have our stick, right? You know, we, we all have what we need to do to get a point across to people. If you're just doing it to stoke, spark emotions, uh, I, I got a question. Your intentions. I am willing to hear every voice. I'm willing to hear a voice that does not, uh, you know, agree with mine. We can come to an agreement, but if you're not going to talk about it, if you're not not here to say, "Okay, man, what what's on your mind here?" The same as I'm saying to him or someone else, then there's 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 a problem there, and I, and I gotta call you suspect. You you kind of hit on some things that that were standing out to me around, you know. I think we we there was a while there where we framed up social media and going all the way back to blogs as this overwhelming positive because it and there there was a sort of giving rise giving a voice to a lot of people who hadn't necessarily been represented. But we've now seen going you know projecting that out that cuts both ways. So there's you know there's the people who are trying to advance the conversation. And I love the you know pandering to tradition and and you have that side. And you have some of the, you know, echo chamber. I think that sometimes it's it's hard to break through and have a dialogue because it's easy to just sort of hop on, you know, the the coach conversation right now. Uh, oh, this is this is stupid. There's no, there's not necessarily breakthroughs. There's not necessarily the white voices can say this is bullshit, but not necessarily get past that level. And then I think even about, I think it was President Obama who said like. Don't just tweet about this shit, like take action. And so I, I put it all together to go almost is social media a, a net pot, even a net positive in some of these things, because it is giving us ways to pretend like we're having a dialogue and sort of be think we're a good person or to or to cater to and really reward someone who might just jump in as a contrarian and and do some of the, like you said, pandering tradition. Where do you where do you do you feel like that that's still adding overall positive or that some of it is maybe holding things back when it comes to progress? I am a person like uh, before I would walk up to the plate, I I have a rubber band around my wrist. Right. And I was smacking. I was smacking against my wrist right when I was walking to the plate. That was trying to channel into my dark side. All right. I think in this world, there has to be the existence of a dark side to understand what the light is, what a, a full appreciation of the light. If you, if you don't have that dark side, th- there would be a, a bunch of naivete, right? So I think that with the existence of social media, um, and it's something that 
obviously it has its pros and cons, but the pro of it is you're hearing every voice. Like, so now if we walk down the street, we might pass a person that now in social media, they might be our best friend, but we, we wouldn't have known that person before, you know? So the, the combination of millions and billions of people speaking at the same time that would not have spoken to each other previously is speeding up the world. Just as almost in this, uh, you know, how technology is like the phones or, uh, you know, a typewriter of old, you know, if you buy the next one, it's going to be outdated. Right. So, that's what's happening with, with social media. The conversations are obviously enthralled with the 24-hour news cycle, um, you know, gossip, uh, sex, rock and roll, you know, whatever you want to say. There, there's a bunch of these conversations happening. You know, the, the people who are the most provocative are standing out. And if they're already stars, then people are going to mimic what they're saying. If their intentions aren't pure, that's the danger because, you know, as, as we know, you know, we, 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 this is what we do. Right. So when we talk to fans and fans are having conversations, we can tell what fans are mimicking ESPN by almost to the word that's coming out of their mouth. Social media, again, if that person that does have good intentions, that's what's going to happen. But you're also going to have a bunch of positive people out there. You know, you have people who are branding themselves. So um, is that also a good thing? I, I don't know. You know, I, um, I had a similar question uh, outlined too, because, you know, months ago when we were having BLM protests and a lot of things happening in the beginning, I would say of, of 2020, I was asked to be a part and a voice in a conversation, what was billed as an open dialogue about race, mental health, uh, sports to an extent. Um, I think that, I don't know if there's such a thing as an open dialogue uh, to be able to be had, particularly when it comes to, uh, to online social media. So I, I understand there are a lot of voices, <laughs> but uh, I also felt that, um, you know, it was a really a no win situation where if I tried to uh, give an open, honest, um, you know, opinion, um, it was looked at uh, differently uh, and that, you know, really shut down uh, quite a bit. Even, you know, I was asked a question about my background, just giving my background, raise questions. <laughs> I said, well, you asked me the question. I answered the question. So I think there's a lot of minefields. And now what we're seeing, you know, with, um, you know, conservatives, uh, you know, yelling about censorship as it comes to social media and big tech, et cetera. Uh, you know, Kyle mentioned the echo chamber and it seems like, you know, again, you know, when I, when I mentioned, you know, the black athlete forum over here, but now it's even like, well, there's the, the right social media stuff. There's the left social media stuff, right? It's almost like we're dividing these voices so that everybody is getting channeled into these echo chambers. And I think that, you know, it, we need more people like yourself. Again, I, I, you're trying to defend yourself about being open-minded. I mean, I, I, you didn't prompt me on that. Like that's who you are, right? So you, you, you are, you're able to carry these conversations, but by and large, I don't think the public is. And I think so many people are out there with pitchforks on both sides waiting for that gotcha cancel culture moment to just stick a fork in somebody. So, okay. All right. Let me, let me unpack what you said about pitchfork on both sides. The pitchfork on one side should be the size of a moon, right? The other one should be a needle. We aren't having a conversation again to, to, to be on an equal footing to where the intellect of all of us can combine and get to a productive measure, right? Like me, me as a black man, you know, I'm, I'm growing up, you know, um, being called Mookie in the locker room by my white teammates. And, you know, they got pictures of Mick Mookie Wilson in my locker, um, if those things happen to white folks, right, 
we're not even talking about the 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 housing, the, the loans, the the jobs, the education. Like we're talking about like, like social things, right? That that that's that are being that that we are dealing with. That the not only demeans us, but it it hardens us. It makes us bitter. It's very frustrating. If the other side with the needle, I'm not going to say victimized, but if, if they were, you know, picked on as much, I could see something happening. You know, what I, mean? I, I could see like maybe this side. I don't want to be clear. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, so. My my methodology, my methods of being who I am now is saying I'm neither right or left, right? If I take myself out of the right or left box, and I'm not I'm not going to defend either. Mm-hmm. I'm able to discern what both are saying, and can come back with a reply exclusive of right and left. So it confuses the right or left, right? You know, so it, it, it challenges them to dig deeper into who they are so we can have a a conversation, yeah. you know? Yeah, I, I think my point was it wasn't whether who's right, who's wrong, and who's got a bigger pitchfork or a smaller pitchfork. I think my point was I think we, we drive this wedge and alienate them. So if the, the really the point right. is yeah. to solve right. these problems, mm-hmm. how are we solving these problems by putting everybody in a box by themselves to keep festering those attitudes and those 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 beliefs that they have. I think and I don't have the answer for it. I'm saying like, well, you know, it sounds like social media could be the great equalizer for conversation, but I think that it actually expedites the process of driving a bigger wedge and and the biggest true. will be bigots and the and and the bleeding hearts will be the bleeding hearts and you know they'll never meet in the middle and you know these attitudes then go generationally right and they carried on to their kids because of that wedge that's driven in and again there's no answer for it (laughs) i don't i don't know it'd be a much better world if there was but you know i think here's the here's the big thing man so uh, the questions that the average fans has right who can about coaching right who can most answer those questions? Players, maybe owners. Owners. Oh, oh! Owners. I thought you meant like the right, right. addressing uh, addressing the issues. Like you know, the the players are going to stick up for a B enemy or a Staley. But if you're saying I, you're saying fix the problem. Answers to the problem is what you're saying. Yeah, go straight yeah. to the top. Like if when I'm in a locker room, when I'm at a game, I'm not just seeking to cover the players. I'm talking to fans. I'm talking to that old guy who's walking by, who possibly a Hall of Famer, that's a trainer now. You know, I'm getting his story. You're trying to get the whole story. So when you have that in mind, you know that the person that can answer that question the most is the owner. This is where I'm saying that this is a really embarrassing conversation. You aren't hearing owners address what they are being faced with, okay? So when you have sports outlets, fans and media and talk about it, it's like we aren't talking about a solution because we don't have the answers. Like no one is saying, how can this be fixed? Everybody's attacking the Rooney Rule and you know, they're, they're attacking, you know, Jacksonville's owner for hiring Urban Meyer before he was hired, you know, all kinds of things. I don't have a big difference, a big problem with ownership spending their money how they want. Just don't come at me with no bullshit. You're like, they, they don't, don't do that, man. I'm going to call you out. You know, I'm going to be really offensive in calling you out because you're trying to belittle and demean me by just <laughs> this is funny to me man it's, it's funny to exist in this realm as you you know I'm, I'm, I'm i'll be 53 in, in march right so i think that once i became 50 my fuck you meter be, became amazing you know it, it became immediate so don't patronize me the patronization is what angers me that's 
it right there. It is nothing else. It is not a, 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 a problem-solving issue. Like, we can get to a problem-solving issue if you don't pander and patronize me. That That's the whole the whole issue for me. So it's, as long as owners are silent, we're not going to ever get to this problem. We, the crux of it. We will never do it. Yeah, it's, it strikes me, you know, thinking about other places in business where CEOs have to, you know, they may not be held accountable in the sense they get fired and get giant severance and, and all this, but they at least have to answer for these things, right? And that, yeah, there's a lot of press releases and different things. And it seems like one of the critical differences here, and we, we just, I think, experience a lot of it in politics too, is is that sort of access journalism side. The people with the biggest microphone, the biggest audiences who might hold them accountable, a lot of times are you do that, you're, you're, you know, not getting into the locker room. You're not getting access to players anymore, but it's a, it's such a striking contrast of, you know, for all of, you know, some of the the big tech companies evasiveness, there's moments where uh, Mark Zuckerberg has to sit in front of Congress and at least acknowledge that these things are happening and he may still patronize, but at least he's got to account for it. How many owners do we ever hear actually speak? There's a, there's a statement made if at all, but you, what would it do if three owners were actually forced to give interviews and explain what what they did? And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe that we see more of that than I than I note. But uh, that that's right. You just it just stood out to me that we don't ever force an owner to to actually address the public in a meaningful way about this. And and I you know maybe it's just a call for the people who have access there to push on that. And what what because the focus do? the focus is always the player. Like the fan is thinking about the player when it, like I, I would go out on press row before games just so I can see the Christmas eyes of fans who are waiting for their heroes to come out of the tunnel. You know, the focus is always going to be on a player. It, it, there's some bad coaching out here. The fan doesn't see the coaching. The fan sees the performance of the player. Unless it's something blatant. Or you can see, you know, or a bad play, or you know, a bad reaction to uh, a bad play. But the, the focus will always be on the player. That that's how sports is set up. You know, the the whole ACH thing. You know, protection of Babe Ruth. Right. You know, there isn't, and then uh, there isn't a desire to wonder what the owners are. We, we, well, I can speak for myself, you know, I do because I'm trying to get into every corner of a sport so I can be knowledgeable to the fullest extent. So, like, when I were in the locker room and before this was even popular, I was asking white ball players about race. What did you think about what happened to Trayvon Martin? It was very unpopular. There was a very, there was a, a, a discomfort in the faces of these white athletes. This was around that time. Now it's a little bit different because everyone's being asked these questions and you got guys like Chris Long and, and, and JJ Watt, you know, poking their chests out when it comes to these sort of things. So the conversation is getting to a corners of people that would not have been privy to those conversations before, but it's always going to be the player. That's, that's it. It's, it, 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 like when you approach an owner in a locker room, they, they're almost surprised that you want to talk to them. It's the same as, you know, uh, an assistant coach when you're walking through the press room. Like Chris Ford hit the first three-pointer with Boston, right? And my dad brought home the Hoop magazine. Uh, and it said on the magazine, Chris Ford hits first three-pointer ever in the NBA. So me being a reporter and I see Chris Ford, Chris Ford walk by, I want to talk to him. Well, he was like, what you want to talk to me for? You know, I mean, that conversation could have been something that a little kid has read and could have taken something from the conversation. So that's the reason I want to talk to everybody I see. You know, I interview an ant crossing the street. If you got a little bit giddy up on the steps. <laughs> Michael, <laughs> uh, we, we do have to wrap soon. I know uh, Kyle's got a bit of a hard stop today, but I have an idea for a follow-up for this, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, I do want to also give one more anecdote uh, and then kind of kick a question your ways. Um, you know, when you did join us at, at Blogs of All 7 out in uh, Chicago, you know, the topic 
again was on on race uh, that was the conversation about the treatment of cam newton and peyton manning and and the differences there in the media and in fans but yes. conversation aside i think the one thing that really again shows your character was i will do this but i gotta bring ron glover with me all right to come have this conversation too about your concept of playing it forward giving others a platform giving others a voice that was recognized. I don't think in, you know, seven years I've ever acknowledged that to you. Um, but again, these little things and the way that you carry yourself uh, do matter and, and are uh, are recognized. So I just mm -hmm. wanted to thank you for that. And also for the introduction to Ron, who's who's a great guy as well. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I mean, the, the whole thing with me is I, I know that I'm a conduit, a, a doc connector. Um, networking is probably my biggest skill. Um, yeah, but if I, if I recognize or I identify a talent, then I, I'm going to do everything I can, regardless of genre or, or race or, or, you know, uh, gender, you know, to, to, to bring that person to the fore and let them do what they do. You know, I think that's important. The more voices, the more important voices, like, you know, Kyle was talking about social media, you know what I mean? And, and the, the, the filth of some of it, <laughs> yes. you know, I'm talking about good people, good voices that, that know what they're talking about. Absolutely. Um, and before we go, um, tell us about this horror novel. Is it young adult? Is it uh, adult? Is it kids? What are you writing here? It is, it is, you call me unapologetic. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, I'll send you something. All right. Okay. I, I I really don't want to talk about it yet because you know the publishing and all that kind of stuff. You know, okay. but um, um, it's it's a doozy. It, it it really is, and I hope people are are willing to to uh, read it instead of trying to run from it. <laughs> oh, that's why you're why you're putting it out in the, into the ether, huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, very much looking forward to it. Very much looking forward to keeping uh, tabs on what you're doing, what you're saying. Definitely follow on on Twitter because uh, he, he is vocal there. But again, keep an open mind and and be kind to one another. <laughs> so yeah, with, that's it. Yeah. With that said, Kyle, thank you uh, for a great week. Uh, Michael, thank you for, again, just uh, friendship, uh, your, your involvement with our, our conferences. You've come to our draft parties, and, you know, I, I think you were up in New York for the – were at the NFLPA event uh, up in New yeah, York. Yeah, I was. Yeah, mm -hmm. so um, appreciate you always, um, you know, joining us and, and, and lending your, your talents and your, your skill. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, thank, thanks, Michael. We'll, 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 uh, sorry, we, we could have probably gone on for three or four hours. This was great. So we'll, I, got a, I got an idea to stick around after we wrap. So until next week, this is the OGs. I'm Don Povia. That is Kyle Bunch. We'll talk soon. Peace.